Welcome into episode 72 of the House of L podcast. I am the L of the House of L, Lawrence Holmes, and I am glad that you are listening to today's episode. I'm excited for it because one of my favorite people is on the podcast today, and I am very much looking forward to you hearing what he has to say, and I can tell you that the conversation went into directions that, I, I mean, I knew that we could because it's me and Elliot, but it's fun. We we got into some some really heavy conversations, especially about religion uh, and Catholicism in particular, that I think that you'll find um, worthy of your time. And then, of course, we geeked out because that's what we do. Elliot is king of the, the geeks here in Chicago, so I enjoy talking to him about all sorts of stuff, including what happens next with Marvel, DC, that sort of thing. We, we get into a lot of stuff. So I'm not going to waste a lot of time because I know that this episode is kind of long already, but I just wanted you to hear uh, a guy that I think is, is very thoughtful, I, and I enjoy him, and you'll hear him um, apologizing profusely for spilling water on my subwoofer at my house, but it was totally fine. I don't know why he's still worried about it. He doesn't have to worry about that anymore. But Elliot also is um, a wonderful human being that tries really hard to to make the lives of animals better and find animals good homes. And I'm not an animal guy, but people like Elliot and Sarah Locke, like they make you go, maybe I should be a better human being and get an animal. But he does incredible work. And he is um, a good man. You should be following him on Twitter, at Elliot Serrano, is where you can find him. You can find all of his geek content. He is, wow, let me run down the resume here. He's a writer. He's a radio talk show host. He has created his own comic books. He has pitched Marvel and DC for all sorts of stuff. He might be having a TV show. It's all in here. It's all in here. So enjoy episode 72. Me and my man, Elliot Serrano. This is ah, there. Oh, there we are. That's a live mic. That is a live mic, sir. All right. We're deep. We're diving deep. Nothing's out of bounds. I'm talking about everything today. You are? Yeah. Okay, good. I'm glad that we have the chance. I'm first of all, I'm so happy that you're uh even on the pod. Because well, we've talked about this. Like you are a natural fit to be on House of L. But we just, for some reason, haven't done it. It doesn't. Well, I mean, I've been on your, I've been everywhere on your show. I've been on your other podcast. Yeah. And now I'm on House of L. And you know, that's the thing. People are always asking on Twitter, when mm. is, you know, when Ellie, when are you going to, when are you going on House of L? Where are you going to do, you got, you got to go on with Lawrence and talk about this. You got to go on. You got to talk about that. I mean, all right. I go, what? Like I have control over this? You know, you got to tell the man. You got to tell Lawrence if he wants. I mean, but mind you, I didn't mind being on, you know, the Loho show. And well, I don't want to burn you out. Like that's my thing. I don't want to. I don't want to reach into the favor bank too often. And I feel like when I ask you to come and do stuff, like, can you come hang out in the studio and talk about Avengers? I feel like that's me reaching into the favor bank. You know, okay. I don't know if I should be telling you this or not, but you have you have a substantial balance in the bank. I mean, you. I know you think you ask a lot, but you don't. And and I and I'm gonna I'm gonna we're gonna go back on this one because I really do feel a lot. I owe you a lot after what I did to your subwoofer at your uh, <laughs> football party. <laughs> 
<laughs> the subwoofer's fine. I know, but I I'll tell you something. Uh, we're we're going back. This is this is going back a bit. You know, I blame myself for you not having big parties anymore. Not invite because I remember even you talking about it on your show once. I think you were talking to Peanut about it. And you're saying, you know, you know the thing about when you have everybody over for a party. I love having everybody there, but afterwards, just to clean up. And I remember that evening. I remember that evening. It was let's see, it was you. I think Joe Ostrowski was there. Roki, Roki, Chris Tannehill, Herbie, Herbie, and me. And I had had been drinking some stuff that Herbie brought to the party, and that, that was was it. Steel Reserve is that what he was no, drinking? No, it was a peach. On? He was drinking that, but he had some peach thing, some peach flavor thing. He's ridiculous. And I was pretty much useless at that point. After after I had that, I was like, man. And I was a, I was a, and I was like, I'm just sitting in a corner while you guys are talking. And I kept I kept getting up and going, hey, can I help clean up? And you went, no, Elliot, that's okay. That you good? Just sit down. And all the other guys are looking at me. <laughs> So, so that my complaint about cleaning up is not Elliot specific. Yeah, but it was part of it. No, it's not. Dude, I spilled stuff all over your subwoofer. It, the subwoofer that stayed fine. with me. That we're talking. We're talking when I stand before my Creator and He goes through all my <laughs> deeds. He's gonna look at the book and he's gonna go. And then there was a time you went to Lawrence's party and you spilled booze. Was I don't I don't remember what I spilled. I spilled something all over your subwoofer. And okay. And no, again, again, nothing's off limits, dude. I saw the look on your face. You had the. I'm not mad. I'm disappointed. That's the look you had on your face. Well, I have that look on my face a lot. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's my resting bitch face, I, I guess. That. I get that a lot, too. Um, so, no, but it, the subwoofer's fine. Like, it's one of my favorite things. Like, the little guys came and, like, built me a really cool setup where my speakers are in the wall in the basement. It's probably my favorite thing about the house. Yeah. The subwoofer is fine. Right. It wasn't damaged. I still use that exact same subwoofer. Okay. So you're you're absolved, sir. All right. There, sign of the cross. You. You're Thank you. completely Flick a little holy water. At yeah, me. <laughs> but not well, on the glad. subwoofer because that would be bad. Because <laughs> that would be bad. Uh, There's so much stuff that I want to talk to you about, which is why I'm glad I got you on the podcast for 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 this episode. I'm trying to figure out even where to start. Uh, you know what? I got it. Why don't we start with your love of animals? Oh, well, I thought you were going to start with Republicans blaming video games for violence again, but that's that's cool. I can, no, I mean, we can get into that later, <laughs> even though there's been study after study, study after study, study, but whatever. Really? Um, but were you always a pet lover? No, no. I mean, for folks who know all my different aspects of what I do, of course, there's my geek side, and then there's my, you know, my animal advocate side. And there are a lot of folks in Chicago who are like that. Um, I'm friends with um, Elliot Bambro of Chicago's The Chicago's Best Show, and him and his wife, they're big animal rescue folks. My friend Sarah Locke from Sarah NBC Locke. Sports Chicago. Uh, Sarah Spain. Um, 100%. Um, I know, I actually, I got to know Sarah not only through Red Eye, but for the fact that she took training classes with her dog Fletch at, um, anti, at the Anti-Cruelty Society. And I remember running into her at Anti-Cruelty Society. We kind of like became friends that way. And um, it wasn't until Fletch decided he liked me that I knew it was we were cool, you know. But Sarah's uh, good people, man. She's really good people. She's been on the podcast, and uh, I'm really happy for the way that her career arc has gone. I'm so happy that she's been accepted doing the stuff that she's always wanted to do. 
Like, I think she she hasn't had to compromise herself too much. Like, we all make certain concessions, but I don't feel like she's had to compromise herself and she's risen to a place of national prominence, which is insane. God, I, and, like, I, I root for her all the time. I mean, you know, we uh, she's kind of like... Um, like when we were both doing stuff for Red Eye, Red Eye Chicago, we were doing the five on five, and then we'd have a little banter back and forth from time to time. And and she's always been really cool. You know, that's the thing. I'll never understand guys who have a hard time with women in media. Like get give people a hard time in social media. I got I like Julie, Julie DeCaro, who I love. I've known her for years too. We started out at Red Eye together as well. And and when I see the way guys talk to her, well, not all guys, but there are a couple, you know, trolls out there who, who just have to be like jerks about it. I'm like, why? Why are you like that? Because the, the she's like one of the coolest people I know. Julie DeCaro is one of the coolest people I know. Sarah Spain, one of the coolest people I know. In fact, everyone, most almost uh, everyone, I'm not gonna say everyone, but most everyone I know in sports media, really cool folks. That I love what they're talking about and love sharing their opinions. And then, you know, and that's what anyone wants to do, just be able to talk and engage. And then you have people who are really jerky about it. And it just seems to me that with women, they tend to get it more than guys. Oh, that that is true. Yeah. And I imagine that it's the same inside the, the uh, geek and comic book world, too. Oh, my goodness, man. It is bad there, too. It can be really, they talk, you know, they talk about toxicity in fandom. You know, you'll see that in all fandoms. Unfortunately, it seems to be a lot... In um in in geek culture, geek culture, comic culture, heck, you get toxicity in animal welfare. You know? Really? Yeah. Um, you know, you get this whole thing where people talk about um, folks who you, you who love animals can't stand people. So to me, my my thing has always been: you can't work in animal welfare. You can't work trying to make the world place better for animals if you don't like people, because you have to be able to relate to people too. And my job is essentially. Um, doing a lot of community outreach and engagement with kids, with youth um, and adults, and talking about why it's important to at least be respectful and responsible with your pets. And um, like when I grew up as a kid, I mean, I'm the, I, I tell this story uh, to the kids that I talk to because um, I never want to shame kids if they've you know if they've had a pet that died or or they knew that they couldn't keep a good care of a pet and their family had to give it away at some point. Because when I was a kid, you know, I, we were. I was horrible. I was a horrible pet owner. I was a kid. I didn't know anything. My family, we weren't always, you know, we didn't always have the means. Uh, we couldn't always take good care of our pets. We, we had a revolving door. I begged my parents for a pet. Then they'd be keep it for a while. Then we'd give it away. Bing, bang, boom. Um, so I know what that would be like. And you would think that I would never want to go into that area as I got older. Um, but somehow when I started getting into animal welfare and working with animals, it kind of got into me and started sort of informing my ethics and my belief system. Hmm. And it, not, not so much, I mean, it's a whole, um, you know, I always ask people this argument. They go, well, you care so much about animals. What do you care about? Don't you care about people? I go, of course I care about people. Um, I, uh, I want to help people too. It's not like I, my compassion is only limited to animals. Although a lot of folks will sit there and go, well, you guys spend all this money like sheltering animals. What do you do? What about homeless people? I go, uh, yeah, I'm, I give for homeless shelters all the time. And um, I want, I try to contribute what I can. Well, what are you doing? You know, right, some of the programs that we do, we, uh, we work with homeless shelters to help those folks. So um, I think there's a bit there where if you can be, um, have an integrity about your compassion to care about everyone, then it's more effective than if you just said, I just love animals and I don't care much for people. 
when did you first kind of fall in love with what we would describe as geek culture? Oh, man. I was really young. Um, I mean, I don't know if you, you get, you're born into it. You know, isn't it most folks who are listening to this are going to probably agree to this if, you're, if you grew up this way. Remember when you were a kid, if you loved comic books, if you loved cartoons, if you loved that nerdy kind of stuff, if you loved to read, if you loved to spend time just drawing, if you loved the time just stay in your room by yourself and do your thing, you were considered kind of like the odd duck, you know, because you weren't out there playing with all the kids. You weren't out there. Maybe you had questionable social skills. You didn't know how to talk to the other guys. You didn't know how to talk to girls. And everyone thought you were kind of, you know, again, a little odd, you know, off-center. Um, and I was that kind of kid. I mean, and my, uh, for me, it was even more so than growing up in like a nerdy culture, um, which was always kind of my safe space or my escape because I also grew up in a really religious family and in a very religious, almost a fundamentalist family. My church wasn't fundamentalist, but I grew up in that culture because I'm, I'm Puerto Rican. And in, in my family, my, my immediate family, we went to a Disciples of Christ Church, which is like a non-denominational, kind of non-denominational, but also known for being the church of Ronald Reagan and Jim Jones. So, I'm a, Yeah, when you yeah. said it, I was like, oh. Yeah, right? There you go. I saw that look. It was similar to the look you gave me when I spilled on your subwoofer. My subwoofer's fine! <laughs> but then... But then, I, and then I had grandparents who were like Pentecostal, and now Pentecostal churches. Anyone who knows Pentecostal and Charismatic churches, that is something different. And I remember when, as a kid when I went to my grandparents. When I would go to our grandparents' church, and I'd walk into their into that church and that temple, and I'd see a drum set at the front. I'm like, what is this? And then, and then the service would start, and they'd have the instruments, and people are getting really loud, and oh my god, da, da, da. and then you start going, whoa, this is different. And um, then you go to more. I, I'd have I'd go to Baptist churches. You know, I remember when I saw uh, the Blues Brothers. You know, I remember when Jake and L would go to the church where James Brown is the preacher, and the people are dancing. I go, yeah, I've seen that. Yeah, I've been there. Yeah, I've seen it. So um, that whole thing kind of was like. A journey for me because you hear about people's expressions in getting to know God and what God is to them and what God expects from them. Um, you know, if if there's anything that's going to screw your brain up, it's wondering what does God want from you, right? So when you're wrestling with that, and then you're wrestling with this love of things. Now, mind you, um, when you're um, into geeky stuff, like you know, again comic books, or like, say, Dungeons and Dragons, that tends to be pretty antithetical to religion, right? What did they say about uh, D&D when, when, when we were kids? That it's the devil's work. It's the devil's work, right? You're going to get into witchcraft. You're going to get into sorcery. You're going to get into, yeah, doing all these bad things. Are you a Wiccan? Yeah, stuff like that. They still said, like, when Harry Potter became really uh, popular, and then all these uh, fundamentalist preachers are saying that Harry Potter is a gateway to Satanism and so on. So you're... You struggle with that, you know. So to me, it was always trying to reconcile different things, reconcile. I love the idea of of myth and fantasy <laughs> and then religion. And then you go, wait a minute, those two aren't that different from each other, you know, because I know I'm going to, you know, some people get angry about it, but um, the Bible, 
I think the Bible is a wonderful thing, and it's a great thing for people to read. And if it gives them comfort and solace and helps give them direction, it's also a great thing. And makes them a better person. It makes them a better person. But if um, the Bible is proof of God, then, you know, amazing fantasy number 15 is proof of Spider-Man. And so, you know, I, I need, you know, you got to tell me where the differences are there. I think as you, you reach into that, you find something in it that affects you, that touches you, that helps give you a moral center, and then you work with that. Um, and, then, but, and then here's the other thing, too, and this is the problem, and it, talk about toxicity. You have toxicity in the church. You know, if, you, if you're 100%. going— 100%. Right. If you're going to judge others for the way they view their faith and what they believe, that's, I don't see how that's any different— than looking down on on people who have different opinions about sports, have different opinions about comic books, movies, and so on. What's amazing about what you're saying is I think about that quite often because the the comic book aspect of it, because I feel one of the reasons that that the, the idea of the Green Lantern is very strong in me is because I've taken something from it that... With willpower and imagination, you can do whatever. You can do anything. That's pretty much what the lanterns are. Mm-hmm. Like that's what the, the the ring is powered by will. So if you have will and then the imagination to do a construct, you can do anything. And it's interesting, like how many cool things have been um, that I can adapt from comic book culture and create a moral code off of it. If you take a character like Captain America, you can create a moral code off of him. Same thing with Peter Parker or whomever, whomever your your deity inside of the comic book world is. There is, considering some of the men and, and women that wrote these characters, you can understand why there's a there's something that to it that lends itself to taking something from it. I, I want to. To, to run this by you, and I want to get back to what you're saying, but I thought it was really interesting how many people attach themselves to the Avengers stuff in, in the MCU, specifically the last two movies, and how people who were outside of the geek tent, my brother, for example, he's not into this. Like, this is not his thing. This was always my thing. But he came to me and said, okay, what is all of this stuff and how could I catch up without watching all of the previous 20 movies? And I gave him a super cut so that he would at least understand what he was walking into the scene in um, Endgame, where Sam says on your left and then oh. everyone comes back. Oh yeah. I've yeah. heard people describe it like, uh, like we scored a touchdown, like, the reactions inside theaters was so massive in that moment to create something like that, to create a world in a mythology where there are lots of shades of gray of right and wrong. But then all of us kind of came together and we're like, yes, yes, yes. Finally, something is going right. I think is an amazing piece of art. And I wonder how it's going to be reflected 300 years from now, 500 years from now, a thousand years from now. What will people say about the way that we moved into what we saw and really, really grabbed onto it? 
It's amazing to me. Oh, it is. I mean, uh, the first thing being, like, you, you pose a question, what is it about the MCU that so many people who've never read comic books, why, why they latched onto it? I think, one, because they were good ideas. They were legitimate ideas. They were legitimate archetypes. They were things that just, they worked. Mind you, I'm, I'm convinced if Robert Downey Jr. is not cast as Tony Stark, it doesn't take off like it does. I agree with you. You know, it's, it's perfect casting. Perfect casting. Um, just like I say, if um, if they decided to keep Tom Selleck as Indiana Jones, we don't get anything beyond Raiders of the Lost Ark. The fact that Harrison Ford was cast as Indiana Jones is what made that series work. If um, Michael J. Scott, if uh, if um, what's his name, um, Eric um, um, Redhead um, the, from Pulp Fiction. Um, the, the dude they originally cast as... Eric Roberts? Not Eric no, no. Roberts. Um, the guy they originally uh, uh, cast as Marty McFly in Back to the Future. Uh, it's going to hit... It, I have this thing where... It'll come back. Yeah, it'll come back. 20 minutes 20 later. 20 minutes later. I'll be like, oh, yeah. I'm, I'm really a geek, folks. I know these things, but it just escapes. Um, but um, if he is still Marty McFly instead of them recasting Michael J. Fox, the Back to the Future movies don't go, go over like they do. They don't catch like they do. So it was that was the bit right there. That Iron Man one with Robert Downey Jr. was the the spark because when you think about it, what came after Iron Man one? Um, Hulk, and eh, do so well. Remember, I mean, uh, they uh, still haven't made a good Hulk movie. Yeah, they said, but but you, you got Iron Man two back. And, oh, all right, yeah. And then Thor, Thor was okay, but you you had Robert Downey Jr. pretty much carrying that. The MCU, because if he doesn't appear at the end, you know, of of, of the was it the it was Hulk at the end? He appears at the very end. You're like, oh yes, we, we're going, we're going. Those ideas were captured in a way where people just took to them, and it's the same with you know again, um, and mind you, we as a as a species, that's what we've evolved to, right? If we have uh, an idea that's expressed in written form, then we need to take it to the next level. All right. We need I mean, um, uh, it's no wonder that they're trying to take the Bible and make movies with them, that they're trying to take the ideas from different uh, religious texts and adapt them to other media to get people interested in them, to want to pursue them and, and, and learn more about them with uh, the MCU. Brilliant. I mean, just brilliant the way they did it, that they they cast the right guys. They made the right stories. People will say that every MCU movie is perfect. No, they're not. No, they're perfect. not. I mean, Iron Man two, eh, kind of weak. Iron Man three. I, Iron Man three ticked me off, but you know, I'll I'll live. I mean, I did like. Um, I I am a fan a, a fan of Shane Black, who wrote and directed it, and Iron Man three felt so much like uh, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which is a really good Robert Downey Jr. movie with Shane Black. I was like, okay, I, I, I I'll forgive them what they did with the Mandarin. Fine. I, it's hard for me to forgive them for I what know. they did to them. Well, the they're going to fix it. They fixed it, remember? If you saw that bit on the Thor The Dark World uh, Blu-ray, they made a little short film about the Mandarin. They fixed it. Cool. Um, but again, back to the ideas that they just they resonated so much with people, and they loved it so much, and they just did it right, which is why I don't, for the life of me, understand why they, DC can't do the same thing, because... Batman and Superman are essentially Captain America and Iron Man. And Captain America, people, America loves Iron Man and Captain America. 
Remember, Iron Man wasn't even a top-level superhero back in the day. Sony gave him away. Yeah. It's like they're like, oh, we can't do anything with this guy. And then Marvel said, okay, we'll take him. We'll, we'll work with him. And I remember when Iron Man wasn't even a top-selling book. You know, you could. it was like a B-list character. And they make a movie out of him, and all of a sudden, boom, he's like the, 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 the most popular character next to Spider-Man in Marvel. I mean, Spider-Man, if for – Folks who don't realize that Spider-Man is the Mickey Mouse of the of, of Marvel Comics. He is the one character you take that little symbol of his, the the eyes and the webbed face, in a, like in a little circle. People around the world recognize that. They recognize that symbol. They know, oh, that's Spider-Man. Just like people know Mickey Mouse. Just like people know the Superman symbol, and they know the Batman symbol. Although they say now the Batman symbol is more popular than the Superman symbol. I don't know about that. Yeah, that's what they say. But but then, so you take Iron Man, who is a B-list character, boom, elevate him to the top, and now you're struggling to make decent Spider-Man movies. So Marvel it was able to take these ideas, get people to really latch onto them, and it's like, um, you know, it's like when your favorite band that you you know you saw them at the at the pub, and you they got really big. You'd go to you'd see their first show like at the at the at the Ar- at the Aragon or hipster something. geek, yeah, and then. They get popular, and then they're playing the United Center, and you're like, oh, man, I knew them when they, were, they weren't that big. I know that guy. I know that singer. He's good, but he's a jerk. You know, <laughs> Stuff like that. Uh, I, it's the same thing that's happened with Marvel Comics. Was it difficult to, for your family to understand that you had kind of said, oh, I look at religion, and I look at this, and I these – are similar to me. Was that difficult? Ooh, man, I can't even say that to my mom. If she, if, you know. So she won't be listening to this portion of the podcast. Oh, she can listen to it, but it's like, I mean, there are days, but my family first, like um, um, I have had, again, my family is a fairly spiritual family, and I've had furious debates with my mom, who was like the, the spiritual center of our family. And over time, her her feelings and her thoughts have evolved, just like just like mine mine have. And there are times when we just butt heads on things. And um, if I say to me that my I you know when I think about what um, you know what I would do in a in a in a situation where my my ethics are being challenged, you know I can go, what would Jesus do, or what would Clark Kent do, you know? Because there are times that I actually it makes more sense to me what Clark Kent would do than what people would say Jesus would do. And because it, to me, that there are so many people I don't think truly understand what Jesus would do in a particular situation. They they have the little WWJD you know bracelets or whatever, but when it really comes down to what would he do, he's not going to do what you think he says. What you think he's going to do? I mean, I've read the Bible, I've read the Gospels, I kind of have kind of an idea about how he feels about you know the poor, the poor, the sick. Um, the only people Jesus ever got angry with were bankers, the money lenders, the money changers. Those are the only people he ever got angry with. In modern society, who who have you ever seen take a money lender to task? You know, you ever see these mega church guys, you know, saying, oh, all this money that we're making is bad. The fact that we're charging money for this book that is going to help lead you to spiritual enlightenment. Huh? You know, Whereas, on the other hand, Clark Kent would say, no, that's that's not right. I can't do that. That's wrong. I'm not going to charge somebody for me to rescue them from a burning building. You know, they, they, oh, you want me to uh, uh, dig this ditch in the middle of a of a of a, a, a land ravaged by famine so that the water can go through and we can start irrigating crops again? Sure, 
I'm not going to. I'm not going to ask you for a, a, a share in stock profits afterwards. You know, I'm going to do it because it's the right thing to do. And yet, you know, and to me, I, if I try to say that to my mom, <laughs> she'd be like, Junito, what are you talking about? I'd be like, my, my sister swears I'm an atheist now. She thinks I don't believe in God anymore. Like, I believe in God. I just don't believe in God the way everybody else does. And then when I, and then when I challenge how people present God, and I challenge the, the 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 way people interpret scripture and all those things, you know. It's like because I it's like oh you don't believe you know and oh you know they're telling me God's angry at me because I don't seem to believe in God. I go no I believe in God. I just I people have a very limited view of God. You know like an incredibly limited view of God. They think that God. Do you think God really cares? Um, you know, uh, whatever is a, what's a petty thing that people get into now when it comes to God. Um, you know, oh, you think God really cares if you get a divorce? Really? Do you think God really cares that you're not going to stay with that guy who cheats on you all the time and abuses you and your kids? Do you think God is going to be offended that even though they can't keep them, their marital vows that you're going to decide you don't want to deal be in that marriage anymore? you think he's really angry about that? God's not that petty. Just like God doesn't care whether your sports team wins or loses. <laughs> you know? We've talked about this in previous, you know, occasions. Are you sure? I'm pretty sure we talked. Yes, I talked about it the very first time I was on your podcast. Because I feel like, you know, God was an Eagles fan for a week. <laughs> and, and, then it, he, and then he wasn't. And All he of wasn't. a sudden, poof, he and wasn't an Eagles fan anymore. He wasn't an Eagles fan. Let's see. Um, uh, God. He, only, he only roots for Tom Brady, apparently. But, but, man. You know, I got to give Tom Brady some credit. He is a handsome dude. He is a handsome dude, and he just keeps going. He just, just keeps, keeps going. going. It's, it is amazing. And I don't know if we will, will fully give him credit for how tremendous he is. And I know that that irks people. There are plenty of people who don't want to hear it because it seems as if Tom Brady got it all. He got the money. He got the fame. He got to win. He got the beautiful wife and the adorable kids. He won. Like, he won the game of life. Yeah, but he did, like, have that thing with that one actress and then leave them. In the Bridget game. Monaghan. I, Robot. I mean, I love Bridget Monaghan. How do you leave that? Because Giselle is over here know, looking Gis at you. Giselle, who yells at fans and says, oh, they, can't, they can't catch the passes for him. I'm like, oh, wow. Yeah, she's definitely in it. Stay in your lane, lady. She is in her lane. Her <laughs> lane is to protect her man. And, is, and God bless us all if we have women like Giselle. Damn it. Yeah. He was right. She makes more than he does. She does every <laughs> year, which is amazing. Uh, so, so growing up, how difficult was this? Like your questions about faith, how difficult was this for you to navigate? You know, it's in the beginning when you're a kid and you really take things more at face value because you're not at that, you know, when you feel it's wrong to question, because here's the thing, when you grow up reading comics and, and, and reading a lot of stuff and you keep reading about the rebellious teen, you know, oh, you're the rebellious teen. And I know they wrote that for kids so they could relate to it. But I always read it as kind of like a cautionary tale, like the whole, look, kid, don't be like this kid here. You know, um, Peter Parker, even, you know, his greatest tragedy comes from a lack of responsibility of not taking things seriously. 
So, you know, there were times when I was like, I don't know. I mean, I didn't question so much. And there was really a need because I, my family, I grew up in a, a fairly dysfunctional family. Um, there was a lot going on, and I was really looking for um, other family, another family unit too. And the church pretty much gave me that. And there were people in the church that kind of like I had, you know, a couple uh, friends. They were like my surrogate big brothers because I didn't have any big brothers. I was I was the oldest, and I had folks who were like, you know, my friends helped me to deal with the girl problems and the and the issues of, you know, what do you do when you're questioning your faith. And so it was kind of, in the beginning, it was simpler because I did take things at face value for the most part. As, of course, as you get older and things, it's just harder to reconcile those things. It's harder to reconcile the contradictions. Um, okay, you want to get, you want to be, screw, I'm going to tell you how screwed up I was at looking back. I grew up on Jack Chick tracks and comic books. Now, for folks who don't know Jack Chick, he's the dude who made all those, so you're going to hell, little like little booklets. And I was fascinated with those because I wanted to be a, I wanted to be a comic book artist when I was a kid. And all, all my religious friends around me went, oh, you want to be a comic book artist? Maybe you can do these kinds of things. And they kept giving me the Jack Chick comic books and the little tracks and little booklets and go, maybe one day you can make stuff like that. And for a while, I was like, well, I guess I could probably do that. Oh, man. Uh, and that, that, that stuff is toxic. Talk about toxic. So, you know, navigating that and then and then as you're slowly gaining more awareness of how how the world works and how, you know, how your faith interacts with it and and somehow that the way everyone told you it was supposed to be isn't the way it is. And then and then you start off thinking, oh, it's because my faith isn't strong enough. The reason I'm not succeeding here is because I'm being challenged. I'm being told, you know, I'm being told to wait. I'm, you know, I'm wrestling with the angel waiting for my blessing. You know, that's that's when it whenever things got rough and I got I had a really hard time and like something's going on with my parents or something's going on with me personally. I'm struggling with things like depression. Or and you know, and I'm not getting I'm not going to therapy, I'm not getting anything diagnosed, nothing like that. And they're just saying, you know, you're struggling with your you're wrestling with your angel, you're waiting for your blessing. Okay, you know, and then you're like, then after then you get older and you start learning more and you realize, wow, that was like the panacea that didn't work. You know, that was a sugar pill that they were giving me that was supposed to, you know, help me, but it didn't work. And then you then you go from understanding to kind of resenting a lot of that. And then you automatically just want to reject everything before you. You know, I'm sure you've encountered a lot of folks who grew up in fundamentalist religious families. Now they're totally anti-religion. They're totally like, they don't want to believe that. Oh, that's what my parents told me. That's what my grandparents told me. I don't want to believe in it anymore. I don't want to say that. I mean, because there are there is a lot of legitimate healing that can come from it and, and strength you can draw from it. But again, don't tell me that this is the way I should understand it and that this is the way it is. Because I can, you can tell me, you can quote me scripture and say, this is what God tells you. And I can turn around, I can give you a life experience that tells you it's the exact opposite. Or another piece of scripture. Or another piece of scripture. What I think is interesting about you, Elliot, is as much as you talk about this, there's also, there's the understanding of the importance of religion in you. You actually remind me of like the best priest that I've dealt with. Like the ones that are like, okay, let's talk about the scripture and let's see if we can make it relate 
to what's happening in the world right now. The ones who weren't afraid to question. I had a, a professor in college, Professor Halstead, Father Halstead at DePaul. He's one of my greatest teachers that I've ever had. And the reason why is that in at DePaul you had to take, I don't know if it's still the case. I should probably know this since I worked there, but you used to have to take two religion classes. Like that was part of your, your requirement. And I remember in the 101 class that, that I was in with him, he went out of his way to say, explore, explore Judaism, explore Buddhism, explore the world, explore Islam, like explore, pull all of the good things from that to develop your own moral code. And he wasn't, what's the right word? He didn't feel threatened as a Catholic priest if his students were looking outside of the Catholic church to find whatever it is that they needed to help make them better people. Does that make sense? That makes perfect sense. But that's what you remind me of. Like, it's you're the person holding up the Bible and go, there's really good stuff in here, but. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I and I think that's a great way to be. Me personally, uh, I, I I think that's the way we should be. And and I think you know being uh, having a tolerance there of letting first challenging and questioning and allowing yourself to be challenged and questioned. And to the 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 thing I the thing that bothers me right now about the state. I'm gonna I'm on, I'm gonna point at Christianity right now because that's the faith I grew up in. And I mean I still consider myself to be you know Christian. Um. My problem uh, with American Christianity right now is there. It's turned into McDonald's. They're saying, "Look, we've got the best. We've got the best religion. We've got the best. Look, billions served. We have the best. But when you actually get a piece of that bite of that burger, you're like, um, you know, I don't think this is such a. We have the best burger." We're going to beat you with our marketing is what we're going to do. We don't have the best product, but we're going to beat you with our marketing. And that's what they're do- what American Christianity is doing. They want to beat you with marketing. And and it's not beating you with works. It's not be- it's not we're going to show you how we're better. We're just going to tell you how we're better. And and that frustrates me to no end because like I go to work every day. I go to Union Station there are um, – uh, there's like – lately, I don't know. Have you seen the Jehovah's Witnesses that are like uh, camped out all over the city? They're in Chinatown. They're out in front of Union Station. They're doing their little booklets where they're just standing there to hand out books. Do you want to know God? Do you know the Bible? Blah, 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 blah. Fine. I mean, and I don't mean to I'm, – I'm, I'm sorry. I'm not meaning to be disrespectful of the Jehovah's Witness, um, really, uh, that faith. That's, I mean, I, I understand that that's a very important faith for folks, and please, I don't mean – I'm saying blah, 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 not – about Jehovah's Witnesses, but about how this is kind of the way religions work in that we're going to tell you how good we are. And the problem I always have with that with that stand of Jehovah's Witnesses right there in front of Union Station is that right next to them, there are not one but two, two folks who are begging, two folks who are homeless, who are asking for money to get food or, to, for, or whatever. And I'm there going, okay, these folks could just be scamming. And they could just be those folks that are there all the time to get money. But you understand what a bad optic it sends when you're taking the money of your church to put into little booklets to give to people and not ministering to the people in need who are literally sitting there right next to you? 
Why aren't you there right now telling that folk, okay, you know, we're ha- we, you're having a hard time. Um, can we help you? We can help you f- get food. We can help you find a job. We can help you find a place to live. And that's really what they think the role of the church needs to be. Stop telling people how holy you are and how Jesus loves us so much and show it. Show how holy you are. Show the love of Christ in your actions. And don't hit me with marketing all the time. James chapter 2, verse 14, faith without works is dead. Is a dead faith, yeah. And, and, it's, and to me, that is, that's, that is essentially thoughts and prayers, right? You know, we send our thoughts and prayers. Now, that's the other one. Okay, uh, when people tell me they are praying for me, they say, Elliot, I, I want to pray for you, or they, 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 they see I'm having a hard time, they go, Elliot, I'm going to pray for you. I'm very touched by that. Me too. And I appreciate that. And when people pray for me, I say, thank you. I'm by no means offended, or but I'm like going, but when I know if there's someone in need or something in need for me to go, well, I'm going to pray for them. No, it's like the whole, um, 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 you know, you say, if you're, it's like I prayed to God to send somebody to help that person, and God responded, I'm sending you. Why aren't you going? You know, so it's like uh, the thoughts and prayers just it's, it's, can be very empty. And I think we need to see more action in, in faith, faith in action, as opposed to people just talking. When did you know that you had a gift for writing? Um, I was told that when I was young. Um, because I loved reading a lot, and I guess if you want to develop uh, good writing skills, you got to read, 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 read. And um, I would write in high school, and I was told um, I took an elective. Um, it was my um, it was my senior year, I think it was in high school. And Which high school? I went to Whitney Young, and um, it was my senior year, and I had already had so many credits. I only needed to take so many classes to graduate in my senior year. And, um, but I, I only really had to take like four classes my senior year, five, but they told me you can't do that. You can't, you have to take so many classes. You can't just like, you have to fill out a schedule, fill out a schedule. I couldn't leave like at one o'clock. Yeah. Right. (laughs) So I had like two study periods in my lunch and I'm like, oh man, I want to leave early. Why do I do that? So the elective was, um, creative writing. I just took a creative writing class. Miss Brown was my creative writing class uh, teacher. And, um, I just I, I killed it. She said, oh, you're really good at this. And I, I always wanted to be creative and tell stories, but she said I was good at it. And then after that, um, I wanted to do more writing. I wanted to be a comic book creator. Um, but, you know, the, this was before um, you could, like, throw a webcomic up on, on, on the Internet and have editors from other you know, all the companies see you and see what you can do. So I had to hoof it and like actually go to comic book conventions and talk to uh, comic book writers and creators and try to network and, and get out there and then sh- and see if I can land a gig. And then, um, and, but through that, I always had to be honing my craft, honing my craft. So, right. You know, there are a lot of folks who say they want to be writers, but they don't want to write, you know, cause the moment, if you think that um, your need to procrastinate or your hatred of the blank page, or writer's block, or stress, or all those things that keep you from writing now, if you think all that disappears the moment there's a check attached, or a deadline attached, or an editor saying, I want a script from you attached, that, if anything, that multiplies it. And you're going to get big time, you know, blocked up, and want to procrastinate, and get, you know, start doubting yourself. So it's like, start making a habit now, right now. Do it because you love it. Do it because you want to share with your friends or you just want to get something out and you want to read it and then look at it later um, and then go from there. 
And in writing, I mean, I mean, people say I'm a good writer. I think I'm a, a decent writer. Um, um, I'm still a very impatient writer. What does that mean? I'm. I get frustrated with my first draft. I always want my first draft to be perfect. And the the as they say, the sign the 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 saying goes: the first draft isn't to get it right; it's to get it out. Like to get it out. You should never and you should never submit your first draft. That was one of the mistakes I would make. I made that really early on in my um, comic book writing career. Is I would submit, I would write a first draft because I'd be working on a deadline, and um, and then I'd submit it. And my editors in the beginning were real generous and gave me very um, thoughtful notes that didn't crush me. <laughs> uh, but I was like, yeah, you know, you're, I was, I'm being kind of an amateur here. And um, so I had to learn to like really write and revise and be critical of what I did and then go from there. Um, so writing in itself, like I've said, writing is finding your voice. If you can find your voice and get it to go from your head to your mouth to your fingers, uh, then anyone can be a good writer. How is like writing a short story or a novel different from comic book writing? Uh with uh, if you're writing prose, okay. So if I'm writing a a short story, right, um, my job is to essentially just express an idea in the way I feel is best. So you know, if you, you read a lot of short stories, right, you're gonna get a sense of something happened here. Some short stories are very Bing Bang Boom, the great uh, you know setup. Um, 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 things happen, then there's a resolution, or maybe not. You know. Um, but there is always in that short story an idea that the that the writer wanted to express that didn't necessarily fit into, like, say, a novella or a novel. Fine. Then you, when you write a novel, um, it's your job to get someone to take take them on a ride, take them on a walk with you, and keep their interest that they're going to want to keep turning that page. And for some writers, it, they do it with their descriptions of the characters. They are able to write characters that you relate to, that you care about, and that you want to follow them. That's essentially J.K. Rowling with the Harry Potter books, right? If you don't care about Harry, Hermione, and Ron, you're not going to like the books. But she writes these great kid characters that you root for. You want to make sure that they're fine. So you follow them you know, through all those books. If you're really into techie stuff like Tom Clancy, what he was one of the first writers to write about uh, using um, tech in, in politics and war and, and, and all the espionage, all that sort of thing, right? Um, um, following on the Ian Fleming, you know, James mm -hmm. Bond. So if, if that's what you care about, that keeps you going. But I tell you, I, can, I, have, I have like four Tom Clancy books. I have finished maybe one chapter on each of them. Tom Clancy's characters, I do not care about them, could care less. He just said this, they're, they're little plot plot puppets. They go from point A to point B. Oh, that's really cool. They did that thing with that cool technical jibber-jabber thingy that he introduced. But after that, I don't care anymore. So I, I, I just don't get into that. But a lot of people love Tom Clancy. The dude makes, you know, he makes a living of it, made a living of it, and he got his books turned into movies. Fine. Um, but there's that challenge. How do you get someone to want to keep turning those pages? How do you get them to care about your story or care about your characters? So with a comic book, when you're trying to write for a comic book, how is that fundamentally different Oof. when you add in the art element to it? You not only do you have to get people to want to keep turning that page, but you're not only writing for the reader that's going to ultimately read that comic. You're writing for the artist who's going to draw it. 
You're writing for the editor who's got to read and approve the script and understand what's happening. You're also writing for the letterer who's going to have to take all that dialogue that you wrote and fit it in around all this artwork that this artist meticulously slaved over trying to interpret, you know, what you said is happening and make it all fit. So um, it's like when you're the comic book writer, you have to do a balance here because I could easily, you know, if my if my um, and, and, and then, yeah, and then I have to write it in a way that people care about the characters, too. So what how do I make that happen? Because if I can't if my character can't say enough to really explain how they're feeling or what they're going through, you might not necessarily understand or buy into their their plight, what what their their challenge is, you know. But if I say too much, then my uh, you, who wants to look at a comic book where the panel is nothing but word balloons and it's all filled in, you can't see any of the action or what's going on. So there's a lot of balancing there. And as a writer, you also have to know when to lean on the artist. Like, I don't need to have the character say this and this because I know the artist is going to get that expression on their face or show this other thing that's going on. So you have to learn to trust your, who you're collaborating with. And when I was working on a lot of the books that I was working on, um, I, had, I did that. In the beginning, I, I didn't trust my artists enough, and I was constantly telling them, this is what happens here, this is what happens there. And it's like, you know... And I could, t- and the artists were great. They were like they knocked it out of the park. I mean, I can't believe that the I wrote the um, Ash uh, Saves Obama miniseries years back, and I got I did not know Ariel Padilla was going to be the artist on that book. Ariel freaking Padilla. For, for, for folks who don't know, awesome artist did, did a run on Spider Man. Incredible artist, and he did the book. And he just, everything nailed it, knocked it out of the park, knocked it out of the park. I'm like, man, I didn't have to put all that stuff into the comic book, into the script. He knew what to do. And then later on, I would like lay off a little bit more and then the artists would do their thing. Um, but it's a, it's a learning process there too. Who were the writers that you first went, oh, I was just having a conversation with a young writer about Toni Morrison, because as we're recording it, Toni Morrison passed away. And this person said, I didn't want to read Toni Morrison because I knew it would stop me from writing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, I relate. <laughs> so so who's someone that, that you read and you went, oh, they've got the whole thing figured out. Wow. You know, it's funny, too, because when you read those, right, I've had the privilege of actually talking to the writers who I've thought that, that they've got it all figured out, and they're going, dude, I know. <laughs> they Every writer struggles just as much as, as all of us. Um, my most influential, the ones who inspired me to write, um, my first was uh, David Gerald. Um, he was a, he's what you would call a hard science fiction writer. He's best known for writing on the, he was a, um, one of the writers on the classic Star Trek series with um, William Shatner, Leonard Nimoy and them. He was in that writer's room. He wrote the episode "The Trouble with Tribbles," that's his, the, his you know big thing. Classic, classic, and he's written a, a lot of science fiction books. Um, he's especially this one series called "The War Against the Chitor," and it's about this alien ecology that's invading Earth and just like basically changing us. And the main bad guys in this book are these giant worms called the Chitor. They're like giant fuzzy worms that eat you alive. And, but it's told from the point of view of the human race that we're trying to figure out what is it about this 
that's happening. It's like we're not fighting an enemy that we understand. It's not like aliens came down in ships and started blowing us up. No, it's like all, all of a sudden these creatures started appearing and the our, our, the jungles started changing and, and just our ecology started turning on us. So I remember when I read the first book of that series was called A Matter for Men. I was like, oh, my God, this is probably the greatest science fiction I've ever read. Because before then, I'd read um, Starship Troopers by Robert Heinlein. And um, Robert Heinlein, for those, you know, he is like the man when it comes to science fiction. And um, so um, David Gerald, is, his writing style is a lot like Heinlein. Heinlein's always telling it from the, uh, the point of view of like a young protagonist who's learning the world around them. So when I read A Matter for Men and the books after that, I was going, oh, I really want to be a writer. And then when I read um, 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 Miracle Monday, that was the Superman novelization written by Elliot S. Magan. Elliot, I was like, uh, oh, my God, a guy named Elliot who's writing Superman, who I've actually, he's talked to me on Facebook from time to time. I'm like, wow, this is so cool. Um, that's when I fell in love with Superman. And when I, I read That's How I Can Write Superman, where Superman's really cool. Because up to that point, I really I didn't get his character so well. The folks that they were writing him, he was still very distant. And um, I didn't get, he wasn't as approachable as he is now. Mm. Um, so those were the guys who got inspired me to write. Who gets me to go, no way, I can't write? Uh, there are three guys who do that. One, Stephen King. Because Stephen King is so effortless in his writing. The guy churns out a new book like every six months. And when you read it, it's like, oh my God. I mean, it would have taken me a it would have taken me two years to write something like this. Because you just you can you can sense him just pouring the words out onto the page as you're reading his prose. Um so that that was one. Um, um Warren Ellis who's a comic book writer and a science fiction writer. He's written some prose, too, who um, is, like, my favorite writer. He wrote, um, among many things, um, the Iron Man miniseries, Extremis, that inspired a lot of designs for the, the Iron Man movies. Um, so Warren Ellis, um, I, f I follow him also on, online, and he will constantly write about how difficult it is to write. And the dude's, like, producing television shows. He wrote the, the first two seasons of the Castlevania uh, cartoon on Netflix, and it, the guys are complaining about, ugh, this is so difficult. Shut up! <laughs> you know? I hate you! Tom Brady. Tom Brady, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then, uh, and then uh, Matt Fraction. Um, folks, I, when I read Hawkeye, his Hawkeye series that he did for Marvel, Matt Fraction and David Aha, I, at that point, I said, I quit. I can't. This dude is... He did everything I could have ever wanted to do with a comic. The pizza dog issue, where it was all through the point of view of the dog. So great. And there's no dialogue. The dog's not talking, thinking nothing like that. I actually pitched that sort of book to an editor I knew at DC. I wanted to do that with Crypto. I said, I want to do an, I want to do an episode where Crypto has an adventure, but it's going to be done through the, the part of the dog. Through the eyes of the dog, and he's not going to talk. You're not going to have thought balloons or like that. And the editor thought it was crazy. He goes, that's not going to work. That's not going to happen. And then Fraction does it with Hawkeye, and I was like, that's it. I'm done. And then so those are – when I read those guys, it really makes me wonder 
should I even be at this party? You know, it's like when you go, um, like if you're, let's say you're an, a musician and you're on stage with a whole bunch of really good musicians that, hey, come jam with us, you know, come play with us. And you're like, uh, what? Remember, um, I'm going to go way back. Young Indiana Jones and the Mystery of the Blues, where young Indy meets Cindy Lumet, and he wants to learn to play jazz. And he has his little clarinet, and at the end of the epi- at the end of the ep- the movie or the the made for TV movie, Indy gets up there and he gets to play a little bit with Cindy Lumet and his and his band. And I'm like, they're going. That's how I feel like because all he's doing is do 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 do. He's better than that. He's kind of good, but that's Cindy Lumet. That's like one of the greatest musicians ever. And he's he's like, you know, indulging. Yeah, come on, come up here, Jonesy. Come play with us for a bit. Oh, yeah, that's really good. Now go home. Now watch <laughs> this. Yeah. <laughs> watch so, when we do this yeah. now. So um so yeah, I think I answered your question. You did. You answered it extremely thoroughly. Do you need more water? No, I'm good. Because I got the extra cup for you. Oh, you did? Oh, then I'll take it. Yeah. See? <laughs> <laughs> that's the beautiful thing about the podcast. podcast. Switch out. Thank you. See? Yeah. Man, I'm full of jibber-jabber today. There's nothing wrong with a little bit of jibber-jabber. It's a good thing. All right, let me ask you about geek culture, because I think that you are one of the foremost authorities on geek culture. I, I got to say, I know you say that a lot, and I appreciate that, and I'm always flattered. Um um, I always have to spend a lot of time reflection because I think I gotta earn that more. You know? No, here here's why. It's the reflection that you already put into it that makes me say that. You think about these things, you discuss these things, these things will pop up with you on Twitter. You'll have discussions, but that's why. It's not just because I like you. Because I mean I like you. But oh wait a minute, hold on. Folks, just so you know, I don't think Lawrence has ever actually said that to me. I had his wife say that to me, but Lawrence himself has never gone, Elliot, I like you. I did you need that? Or because I felt like dude, I'm a nerd. I'm a no because <laughs> I, I felt like like all of the hey Elliot, you're a genius, come be on my show. Nah, I like thought that you. would substitute. I, there are a lot of people I think are really smart and I don't like. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, well, I do. I, I like you, and I respect your opinion. I appreciate it. And and I like you, too. Well, thank you. That's very nice of you to say. Yeah. So us growing up, we got to see the transition, the transition of power where those of us who were entrenched in geek culture, who had maybe been pushed to the side, then found ourselves in a position to tell stories to the grown-up versions of us that were like, oh, yeah, I'll totally spend money to go see Iron Man or Captain America or Captain Marvel or the Green Lantern movie or whatever it is. <laughs> no one wants to see a Green no Lantern No one movie. wants to see that. It's just too bad. I, that's not true. Uh, people want to see it. They just want to see it done right. Can I just say, all right, sidebar. <laughs> Can I just say that if they had just given us the battle that they gave us in Justice League, where Diana's telling the story of, well, we had to protect the mother boxes and we had people from all over. We had, you know, and they had two Green Lanterns there on the screen. Yeah. There you go. It doesn't have to look the way that you made it look. It doesn't have to be stupid. 
It could be that. The technology is caught up. Okay, there. That is, I am done with my <laughs> my feelings on Green Lantern and the fact that there isn't a Green Lantern movie. By the way, name drop. I'm going to pick this name up. Did I ever tell you about how Common explained to me that he had he had wanted to be Jon Stewart? Oh, yeah. No. And I, I can see that, too. He would have been an excellent Jon Stewart. And then they chose Ryan Reynolds because you're going to do the Hal Jordan story before yeah. you do any of the other ones. He was really hurt that they didn't go for that. I don't blame him. And I, I and also, but I as much as I think Ryan Reynolds is a great actor, he was miscast. You know who you know who would have been a better green uh, Hal Jordan than than Ryan Reynolds? Who? Uh, Chris Evans. Can you imagine that? Because he pulled off Cap incredibly, and Chris Evans has the chops to be able to do a guy who's kind of like straight laced and duty driven, but also has a sense of humanity about him. So Ryan Reynolds is just too flippant, and Hal Jordan's not flippant. And now he's found the perfect character. Yeah. He can just be Deadpool. Yeah, and even that took them a while to figure out. Yeah, that an R-rated movie. You know what? what's weird? It's weird, and I don't, I don't mean to judge. It was weird for me to see uh, five-year-olds in Deadpool, like in the movie. Oh, I'll judge. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, are you sure that you – I mean, I know it's a comic book movie, but do you, do you really want to – you want to bring your five-year-old to this? Because well, they're going to talk about pegging in a minute, uh, and it, I'm not sure that your five-year-old's ready for that. I'm, I would say, I mean, here's I am this about language. I mean, the kids are going to hear it anyway, as long as you're going to be honest about it. I mean, my dad took me to see um, grindhouse movies when I was a kid. I saw boobs. I saw boobs on a on a on a big screen before I saw them on a real person. <laughs> so, like, well, outside of my mom when I was breastfeeding, but that was it. I don't even remember that. I mean, that's yeah. kind of how it works for all of us. Anyway, <laughs> when, when do you think it flipped? Like, when was the moment when it became geek chic? You know, it's you can look at a lot of different places for those little flashpoints here and there. But um, I'm going to always point to the Internet and and the dissemination of of information in a way where it can be more widely uh, understood and accepted. I mean, you did see it. Um, you saw it in sports. Okay, um, analytics has existed for the most part in sports for a while, even before you know Moneyball. You know, um, you saw. I remember growing up with it when you had kids. You know, um, memorizing statistics from the baseball cards. You know, were you considered geeky when you did that sort of thing? No, but that's what it was. It was kind of nerdy. You know, if you could memorize statistics, how a, a, and now you know how a, a batter uh, performs against left-handers and right-handers. It's like that idea of having information that we, in, in, you know, absorbed, inculcated, that we shared, that we put into action in different ways. You know, um, it seemed like it was more acceptable in sports than it was in other things. Do you know how hard I try to explain to people? Because occasionally I will go off the rails on the radio show and I'll talk geek stuff. I'll talk about, you know, the, the MCU or DCU or whatever. Like, oh, you're such a geek. And I'm like, you're listening to a sports radio station. It's all they're talking about is sports. Do you understand the level of geek that you yeah. have yeah. to be interested is I talk about the wins above replacement that Mike Trout has. Like, I, I don't understand why there's so many people that can't marry their geek. 
that don't understand that your sports geek is the same as my comic book geek. You know, it's it's funny because the, the, to speak – well, first, two things, and then I'll get into – I want to get into your original question. Um, and I will just say it's um, – um, the Internet helped unite the tribes. So that's kind of what what happened there. But the, back to the issue of what is geeky and what is not. I mean, I, a while back, you remember – you remember um, that's how uh, we first really started talking was the the geek guys of winter. Yes. Remember I got you on, re- on in a red eye gallery. I appreciated and, it. And and you know you were like, "Hey, I'm a big geek." And I was like, "Yeah, you're absolutely right. You are. You're one of I mean, I'll, you're like one of the biggest geeks I knew in media because, you know, when I first started listening to you it was you and Jason talking about wrestling. And then um and of course, you know, all the stuff that you were doing um um uh, with the Bears and and you just um, and then talking to Lance Briggs and about the comics, I'm like, oh, this dude's a geek. He's a total geek. And um, so I was also doing the female version of the geeks, the the top geeks of whatever year it was. And I had approached um, Will Wheaton's wife. Um, oh, my God. I'm drawing her blank on her name, too, which I feel bad because she's a great gal. But she, I wanted to have her in the gallery for the women, top women geeks because she was big in the rescue. She was being in the animal rescue. And I go, you can have people who are really geeky about pets, about animals. 100%. They're very passionate about it. And I told her, I said, Ann Wheaton, that's her name, Ann Wheaton. And I, and I told her, I said, I would love to have you in this gallery. Um, you know, I know you're very passionate about animals and we're talking about the, the top geek women. And she said, thank you so much. She goes, but I don't think that's something that is geeky. And I'm like, passion is what makes you geeky. If you're a geek about something, it's that you're passionate about something. There are food geeks. There are sports geeks. Music geeks. Music geeks. There are, um, you know, um, 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 workout geeks. You know, anything that you're passionate about, something that you're passionate about, you make it a part of you and you like to express it, you're a geek about it. And, and so pulling all that back to why do you think it's become more acceptable and why do you think the geeky, nerdy folks are now kind of more in charge is because we're seeing – as the internet has grown and as information spreads, and now we're really understanding the different. But before, if you wanted to uh, talk about, let's say, the latest issue, uh, the latest episode of Star Blazers, you know, Battleship Yamato in, in, in Japan, um, you had your little newsletters that you sent out to your friends, and then and then came the the, the digital uh, bulletin boards, the, and you then know, you, the message boards, the message boards on CompuServe and all that, and that started pulling the tribes together, pulling the tribes together. We weren't so disparate anymore. We're all able to come together and really, and it, it just kept growing and growing and growing from there. And now social media has exploded, and now there is no, you know, there. We're all we all recognize our tribe. It's all there. And because we have that, we're able to share information and talk and understand better, that allows us to be able to rise up and say, okay, this is how we handle this, this is how we handle that. I mean, let's face it, um, you have analytics in sports because of computer algorithms and being able to share information. Without that, you don't have um, you don't have the state of the NFL and MLB and the NBA or even hockey as it is now. I think those are good points um, by you. And I, I, I'm just happy that it, it is that way now that the people don't have to kind of hide it anymore. And I also think it's interesting, like, who jumps in on it, that it, it's gone from being something that 
was less popular to the most popular thing, which I think is crazy. And I, I go back to the the end game thing because I think it's it's so significant. Like the waiting, the anticipation for it, the way people, the way people, the the Infinity War made people feel. Like the end of that, I didn't. I don't know if I ever thought that we would have that on the big screen. And I I do remember having stories in the books that made me feel that way. Death of Superman, Death of Captain America, where you you feel something that it's not just, oh, well, that was an interesting story and I could put this book away. But you sit there thinking and thinking about what does this mean for this world that you open up a book and go live in for, you know, once a week when you're getting your your comics. When I go to Crocs and Brentano's back in the day and, and get my comics, what does it mean for that world that that person is no longer there? To get to a point where you had people solemnly walking out of Infinity War, like crushed because of what had happened in this universe that was created, I thought was amazing. And I thought it was a, a major step forward for geek culture. I agree. And the thing, too, is this, is that folks understand that they're good stories. I mean, they're dressed different ways, but they're just really good stories. They're stories that speak to people, that speak to the heart of you and what you believe. I mean, the, the, with Infinity War, it's just uh, that is like almost the perfect comic book event movie. It's like, wow, all the superheroes got together and they had a big fight and holy cow, they lost? Oh my God. And 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 wait, I gotta wait how long before I get a resolution for this? You know? I mean that that was classic storytelling, expertly done. And then of course Endgame comes along and then it gives you the it gave you the other side of the coin. It's okay, this is these are the consequences, this is the human toll. So that you sit there and you go, it's not just, oh, they were punchy, punchy, blow things up, and then afterwards it all gets reset at one and there's no consequence to it. You know, there were consequences. I don't, like so many people get angry about the five-year gap that people, okay, you brought them back five years later. Why did you do it that way? You know, because you don't understand all the things that could happen. I go, you have to do it that way because if you just reset it, then Infinity War means nothing. It means that there were, there were no stakes, you know, that it didn't matter that they failed because they could go back and undo it, which is something they do in comics all the time. So I will say I got to give the Russo brothers credit that they didn't do that in the movie. Um, but they were, they were good stories that people wanted to. Now, my question now is, is that sort of thing going to continue? Are people going to continue to be interested in that? Are they going to want the next step, like the phase five stuff? You know, because um, I'll be honest with you, I, I'm not that sold myself i'm like uh, okay I'll, i might go but i don't know but you know what i i've been messing around with this like in my head i wonder if in game was goodbye for us for well, for those of us yeah. of a certain age i wonder if marvel was like thanks for getting us here but we've given you everything that you asked for in, in, in these, what, 22 movies with 22 at the end? Yeah. We gave you everything that you wanted. Now, we're going to do something different. But thank you for getting us to this point. That's what it felt like to me because I don't know how invested I am in, in the, the new 
MCU. I will say I was pleasantly surprised at how I reacted to Spider-Man Far From Home. I haven't seen it yet, too. Really? Yeah. That's shocking. I haven't had the time, <laughs> but I will. You're a busy man. I am. Well, the thing, too, I mean, and here's the other thing. We're getting back to fandom and you know, how toxic it can be. Um, you're, you, we're, I'm curious to see what happens next because now you're going to have all those folks who are going, oh, these aren't the movies. They, these movies weren't made for me, you know. Like they they complain about the the Star Wars prequels, you know. You have all these folks who saw the classic trilogy, and then they were all excited to see the prequels, and then later on they're like crapping on them, saying, "Oh, that those are dumb movies for kids." I'm like, well, Star Wars was originally made for kids, and now it's the oh, this is Disney Star Wars, you know, the sequel movies that they're they're crapping on it. Are they going to be saying that about Marvel movies at one point? Oh, they went to the well too many times. They got greedy. Oh, it's a big cash ca- cash cow or whatever. Um, there's that part of fandom now that isn't happy with just saying, yeah, it's just not for me, to now just being angry and criticizing it. You know? Why Why do you think we're like that? Oh, it's uh, outrage. Outrage. We love outrage. People love anger. You know, we love, we love being angry about things and getting other people angry and having them react to it. Because Lord knows that I can't tell you nice things and compliment you and have that spread. You know, for the most part, people are going to listen to you and share and react to your posts or whatever if you get them angry. But you got to work three times as hard to get people to want to pass a positive message. So the, the discourse in social media, unfortunately, has gotten to that point. Yes, the Internet and, and social media has helped unite the tribes, but now there are little sub-tribes within the tribes who are like fighting for their fiefdoms and getting noticed and knowing their thing. Um, and then you have the gatekeepers, you know, you, 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 know, you didn't read comic books. You don't know this. You know, I, I know that. How could you possibly enjoy these Marvel movies when you didn't grow up reading the comic books that they're based on and so on? The, the weird part is that I know that I have a little bit of that in me, but I'm so excited when someone wants to, like come and hang out. And yeah. Like I'm so in the people that didn't get it. Like even like my brother. Like my brother wanting to jump in because he was like, "Why is this a thing?" And and him and and me saying, "Okay, well you need to watch this. You have to watch Iron Man one because that really kind of sets the tempo for." And him being like, "Okay," and then watching it and walking out of Infinity War going, "Okay," like I. I felt something like bringing someone into the tent for me has always been kind of a special thing. And maybe they don't get as excited about it as I get about it, but they get something from it. I, I don't know. Like, that's why I keep telling people they need to start watching Euphoria because that show is amazing to me. And it's so well done. And Zendaya is going to get all the awards and she's going to deserve every single one of them for how great of a job that she's done this season. And I go, no, 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 no. Yeah, I want you to watch this with me because I need to talk to somebody about it because it's so damn dope. And don't get me wrong. There were things and we talked about Game of Thrones that were disappointing about the way Game of Thrones ended. That being said, I'm really happy that Mel kind of dragged me into Game of Thrones because of how much fun I had getting to the point where I got upset. But isn't that what it should be, though? I mean, that's something that you can share and that even if you get upset about it, it's something that you can talk about. I mean, 
I mean, I think about this. The reason I love comic books so much is my dad bought me comics as a kid because he wanted me to learn to read English. You know, he didn't want me to be behind all the other kids in school. I was in a primarily a Spanish-speaking household. He wanted me to read English. And I grew up reading comics. That's how I learned to read, com- uh, read English. I learned to r- speak English watching television newscasts because I knew that they could, you know. But my, I'll always have the connection to my dad because of that. And I think that's why we really um, we treasure these experiences so much because like a show like Game of Thrones, I can pull my friends and my, and my family, my girlfriend, my wife, my husband, whomever, I can pull them in and they can have that experience with me and that's something we can share. You know, that we can we can share that together and have a communal experience that there are days when, you know, and then that's how we it pulls all of us together. We don't have a lot in common, but oh, wait, you liked you like Star Trek. I like Star Trek. It's something that we can talk about, something that we can get we can pull together and share in common. Um, and I think that is a wonderful thing, which also brings me back to what I was, you know, kind of rambling about in the beginning is it's really what religion is supposed to do. It's supposed to be something that you can talk about and share and be pulled together and drawn together in experience. Um, but here's the thing. It's like the problem is if I tell you, well, that episode of Game of Thrones sucked because all this time they were saying, you know, that uh, 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 Daenerys is going to be the, the the queen of Westeros and join up with Jon Snow, and then she turns into the Mad Queen. What the hell's wrong with that? You're telling me women can't be rulers and blah, blah, blah. And they're like, no, oh, no. It was, you know, they were foreshadowing it here and there. And that, what you know that sounds like? Sounds like people arguing theology. And that's where the problem comes in with fandoms and, and that kind of thing. What's your feeling about what's happened in Puerto Rico over the last month? Oh, man. I just... I don't feel I'm an authority or really have a right to say a lot about it except to say, um, I mean, I have family there and um, I have family members who are really passionate about what's going on. They've been like sending me things like, oh, like when the protests were going on in Puerto Rico and all oh, the governor's got to get out. Nah, 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 nah. And I'm like, OK, I understand. It's cool um, that you're angry, but um, consider this. If the governor resigns, who's taking over? Crickets. Who? No, well, the, the secretary of state will do it. Oh, no, but now she's going to do it. You guys hate her because she was appointed by the governor that you made resign. Okay, fine. She's got to go. Well, there's nobody left. This guy's going to come in. Oh, no, he's not wor- He can't do it because the Constitution doesn't allow it. Okay, it's like a lot of, like, outrage, which, don't get me wrong, it, Speaking up and protesting is important. The way that they protested too, I I was uh, I was impressed. I was very impressed. But here's you know what it would you know what would be really good to take that energy and bring it with you to the ballot box. And that's why I say bring it to the ballot box. That it made me think about. I was thinking about with Puerto Rico. It made me think about when uh, when Rahm Emanuel when the Laquan McDonald tapes were released. And everyone came out and saying, Rahm Emanuel's got to resign. He's got to resign. And the election had just passed like six months before. I'm like, uh, if you really didn't like Rahm Emanuel as a, as a mayor, you could have voted him out. But nobody showed up to vote. Chewy came really close. 
They had the runoff, and even less people showed up for the runoff than they did for the, general, the actual election. So this anger that you feel, you gotta, it's like you can't just go on that emotion. If you want to make real change in your, in your community and in your government, it can't just be when you're angry about some texts that somebody sent. You have to be willing to take that passion and put it into action. Otherwise, it's, it's useless. And to me, I mean, I, 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 I appreciate the protest, but if, if you're, all you're doing is protesting and you're not voting, then you're, you're missing a really important part. What's something that people should read that they probably haven't when it comes to geek culture? Oof. What is something they should read? But they probably have it. Well, um, Understanding Comics by Scott McCloud is probably, it's like, that is like the Bible for comic book creators, but for folks who just don't understand the big deal about comic books and the art form, I would encourage folks to read that. Because uh, Understanding Comics is a, this nice tome. It's this thick book by Scott McCloud, who's created a lot of web comics and stuff. He created a book called Zot. Um, and he's, he essentially breaks the art firm down on how it's evolved and how it works and how it can move forward. And it's I, I would recommend that for anyone who just doesn't get the big deal about comic books. So you can see how incredibly unique and versatile that art form is. Because a lot of folks, well, they'll look at comic books. All they see are panels and splash pages and, and you know, the biff, bang, boom. And, and a lot of folks can't even read comic books when you think about it. They don't, they don't get the visual language of it. I know this, th- this happened for me. Um, Mike Mulligan, who I work with at The Score, I was talking, he listened to the show, which I appreciate it. And I was talking about Superman Red Sun, which is one of my favorite things that I've ever read. And I was explaining about, oh, well, what if Superman didn't land in Kansas? By the way, I think there's – I know that there have been some opportunities of people – there's something there that you could do with the Kents. Like, what if he wasn't raised by the Kents? Like, what – they were just good moral people throughout the history of that comic and, and in the, the DC universe as well that they helped shape who Clark became. Anyway, so I was explaining why I love Superman Red Sun, and he went and bought it. And he was like, well, I wasn't expecting it to be, like, the way you described it, like, I wasn't expecting there to be panels. Right. And I'm like, no, they're definitely, like, the art is one of the things I like about it, but the story, and he didn't he didn't get it, and I, and I felt bad because he went out and bought it, mm-hmm. And he didn't get it. And I'm like, I'm not sure how to make you get it because you just get it. Like, and I and I couldn't express to him how to get it, if that makes any sense. Yeah. No, you're talking about uh, you introduce somebody to the book of Revelations and they're like, what? A beast with a thousand eyes on the inside and out? What does that mean? You know, yeah, it's but it's a language. It's a different language that you kind of have to be in it for a while sometimes to really get it. Like I have Red Sun, I I I liked it, um, but that art that's like you know that's a that's I probably would have started him on Ultimate Spider Man, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is yeah. which is built which they made it for folks who just don't read comics 
because you have to learn, get a hang of the language of, of comics. Because then you have to sit there and go, okay, oh, because uh, I think Dave Johnson was the, um, the, the artist on, on Red Sun. And you look at those panels. There's a reason why he chooses the colors that he does. Mm-hmm. There's a reason why the panels are laid out the way they do. There's a reason why, you know, um, Mark Miller uses certain phrases and they're little things that you have to kind of like know Superman to get. You know, there are echoes of this in here. There's in there. The, a brightness or a darkness to a panel. Right. Because of the story that's being told. Right. Like that, that it isn't. Like the for example in that one like the pul- the colors don't pop like they would in another Superman book because the tone of the book is completely, completely different. different. It's like film school, you know. Like how many people see a film and they're like, okay, yeah, all right. But then you're like, no. but then you go to the class where the instructor like dis- dissects it for you, tells you this is what they meant with this and that. And I go, oh, I thought it was just a bicycle, a guy riding a bicycle. I didn't, I didn't get all that, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so. There's a there's a there's a bit to it, you know. What's the next thing that you're working on? Oh, let's see. So, a um, couple things. Yeah, I'll just talk about it. I did pitch some stuff to Lucasfilm for a Star Wars book. I'm still waiting to hear from them. Okay. So I'm putting it out in the universe right now that if Lucas, if the folks at Lucasfilm actually want me to write a comic book with them, I would love to do it. Um, there are a lot of really talented folks doing it right now, and I just want to write for kids. It's for the young readers line. And um, they're the company that's doing the books now. It's called Star Wars Adventures, IDW. And that's another great book if you want to introduce young readers to Star Wars and get, get inspire your kids to read. Um, I would say get them that book. That's a fun book. Uh, it's 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 you know what got me into reading. You know again. Um, so I'm pitching for them. I I had been working on a pilot for a television series. Um, we've shot a whole bunch of footage and had a former uh, producer for Oprah um, with us. And she thought it was great. I'm just waiting to see what, what happens of it. And then, of course, I'm doing my, my day job at um, Anti-Cruelty Society and trying to um, help kids and pets. I thank you so much for sitting down with me, Elliot. You know, I love these talks. I love, you know, it, it, it doesn't even have to be a podcast. I just love hanging out with you. Well, I'm, I, I'm fun. You know, and I missed your entire birthday month. That's okay. You know, me and Maggie, our birthday is June 6th. I know. And I've yet to meet Maggie. Really? Yeah. I, I hear her all the time. She's great. She's her and uh, her and Julie together. I love, I'm, I love Julie. So I'm, I got to, I got to meet them. All Matt, right. Well, that's a superhero meetup that I, I can make happen. That'd be awesome. I love to talk to uh, Maggie about Star Trek because we're both Star Trek fans. She's been writing some stuff for like StarTrek.com. I heard. Yeah. That's pretty cool. She's very excited. I, I ran across, uh, um, the the Borg episodes, the best of both worlds, parts one and oh, two. Yeah, I love like I'm a big Riker guy, so the best of both worlds, part one is just it's the best. It's amazing. It like that episode has so much stuff going on. Like even like the the music where you know you have the what we call like the preamble to the episode for the credits, like that scene. They set the tone of that that entire episode. Like you felt in peril from the moment that the screen came on. The music like set the tone. They're like, mm-hmm. well, wait, we're here at this outpost, and there's supposed to be an outpost, and we transport down, and where are we? Well, you're in the middle of the city. And they look around and like, no, well, I don't know what. And you just you're like, 
oh shit. It's about to go it's down big right now. They didn't and waste any time. They did. They wasted. Yep. they that. That to me is the, the that one. And what is the other one? Uh, that I absolutely love. Uh, Chain of Command. Yes. Where there are four lights. Yeah. That was me at the end of grad school. <laughs> <laughs> Ellie, I'm not kidding you. <laughs> like that last month, the last month of grad school. For give me my diploma. <laughs> I was I was joking with Mel, and I said, she said, why did you, why did you tweet out that gif of, of the Star Trek dude? And I said, that's what April that felt. was like for me. That at the end of it, I was like, there are four lights. <laughs> Can I please get done? Because they make like we had to. I had to do a defense of the my final project. So I'm sitting there on Skype with my professors, and I'm I'm walking them through the project. I felt like the project was really well presented. It was an hour of me defending it, and my department chair like really going after me, like yeah. saying, "Why didn't you do it this way?" What was what was? And I'm you know I'm freaking out because I'm like, "Oh my god, I got all the way to here." And now it's going to fall apart. I do this for, I do rhetorical for a living every day. I do it for a living. And I'm sitting here like, what? I I know all of this stuff and I'm trying to explain it to you. And because I'm on Skype and they told me, they said, had you been here, we would have sent you out of the room. But on Skype. They just muted me. Uh, <laughs> so I'm sitting there as they're making their decision. Yeah. Like, oh, no. Like, I'm not going to graduate. Oh, wow. And then they were like, oh, you totally passed. <laughs> that is wrong. And I'm like, <laughs> what? It's like torturing you. It was, And that's why were chain you? of command, you weren't there like, are four lights. You weren't like half naked when you were doing the whole thing. Oh, no, no. Like, I put on a tie, man. <laughs> I put on a sweater and a tie, and and I took it very like I was watching videos of uh, dissertation defenses from other schools, like getting myself ready, and I still wasn't ready, but wow. it worked out. But That's that good. chain of command, best of both worlds, part one, oh, it's just Nirvana for me. Elliot, you are the best, and so are you. Thanks for geeking out, and I like you very much. I I like you just as much, and my subwoofer is fine. That is a relief. You'll be invited back. I hope. Wait, are you talking about to the show or the house? Oh, you're always invited to the show. I mean, I don't really. <laughs> I, you're going to be invited back to the house. It's not like we do a lot of entertaining. Yeah, I know. I get that. But Panther well, wants to change that. So Tell Panther I, I miss her and I, I'd like to see her soon. I will do that. All right. Thank you, sir. Thank you. That is Elliot Serrano. As you can tell, we had a really good time geeking out, talking about all sorts of stuff. And and I'm glad that that um, I, I feel bad because I feel like he's been carrying around that subwoofer thing for a while. And it's totally fine. Like, I enjoy music down in my basement all the time. Like, my TV sounds great because of my subwoofer and no amount of be- – well, I guess some amount of beverage, but – no amount of beverage that he spilled on my subwoofer ruined my subwoofer. So I hope you enjoyed that. We went to a lot of different directions, as as you heard. But that's one of the reasons why I love Elliot is that he's capable of talking about a bunch of different things 
and he's extremely thoughtful in the way that he approaches all of this stuff. I wasn't kidding about my grad school experience at the end. It, I don't know how much I've told you about it, and maybe at some point I'll, I'll do a whole podcast about uh, my experience of getting my master's degree. I kept a lot of it private because sometimes, you know, I share a lot, whether it's the radio show or the podcast, I share a lot. And some things I just kind of wanted, wanted to be mine, and I definitely didn't want to talk about it until it was over. So for two years, like, I kept that secret about me going to grad school, although if you've been paying attention to my Instagram or, or Twitter, at Lawrence W. Holmes, you'd have seen the, the, the influx of Alabama stuff that was happening, and that's why it was happening. And I'm really, really proud of what I accomplished. It was really difficult. <laughs> But I'm glad. Um, and I, I think I said earlier that I got um, nine A's and two B's. It actually turned out I, I was surprised. I rallied. It was 10 A's and one B. Methodology class just crushed me. Just crushed me. I had to rally, man. I had to really rally in the second half of the semester to, to get that B. It was a hard-earned B. Apparently, I was two points away from getting an A in that class, too. Any who's old. Yeah, it was rough. Like, to get out was a, a thing. So you need to go check out Elliot's work, by the way. Grumpy Cat, he did that whole series. He's really a, a talented human being, and I'm glad that he was on the show. There's no mail today. I keep telling you, the podcast still lives, people. I know you're listening to it because I see the downloads. The podcast still lives. So if you have questions, houseoflpodcast at gmail.com. There was like one email today, and I was like, oh, I'll wait until they, they reach back up. Talk more about Bama. Roll damn tide and all that good stuff. But yeah, maybe I'll I'll do a whole episode where it's just me talking about my experience. I had a, a really wonderful experience at the University of Alabama, and I thank everyone down there, especially Dr. Roberts, who is heading up that program. He's a good man, a really good man. He helped me quite a bit. So that's it, man. We're done. Hope you enjoyed this. And I can tell you that I've got a few more interviews already in the bag. Some people that you'll want to hear from over the next few weeks. House of L Podcast lives. I'll see you next time. Peace.